Jonah, chapter 1, page 1067, if you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you. Jonah, chapter 1. There's a real vivid picture in our text this evening that's very powerful. It's always had a major impact on me, and I pray that it will have an impact on all of us this evening. Father, we ask your blessing upon this time in your word. We ask that you would speak clearly to each one of us. Encourage us to be your men and women who shine for you in a very dark world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jonah, the petulant, stubborn, disobedient prophet running from God. When the book began, as we studied last week, Jonah was living in the northern kingdom of Israel, and God gave a very clear command to Jonah. He said, Jonah, I want you to go 500 miles northeast to a city called Nineveh, the biggest cities on the map at that time. And I want you to bring a warning of judgment against the Ninevites. Now, this is as clear as could be. Jonah did a 180. He literally went southwest to Joppa. And he gets on a ship headed for Tarshish 2,500 miles away. He's trying to go 3,000 miles in the opposite direction from which the Lord told him to go. That's got to be a record, don't you think, of disobedience. There is no way Jonah was going to give those wicked Ninevites an opportunity to repent. So he left. And Jonah probably thought that he was getting away with it. So he goes down to Joppa, and lo and behold, there's a ship waiting for him. Where are you going? Tarshish. He looks in his pocket. He's got enough money to pay the fare. Looks like the uh, doors are opening. Looks like the circumstances are favorable. Smooth sailing. It's been said that the enemy always has a ship waiting for you at Joppa when you rebel against the Lord. Satan loves to make it look like circumstances are favoring your disobedient choices. But it is never favorable to disobey the Lord, no matter what the circumstances in life are like. But Jonah thinks he's getting away with it. But the Lord is not going to let Jonah go. The Lord loves Jonah. 
And God is going to hunt that man down. Look what we read in verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. So a monster storm targeted the boat that Jonah was on. And the language here in the Hebrew is hyperbole. It's exaggerated. This was a monster storm. Violent, loud winds. The ocean became a boiling pot of angry waves. The waves are smashing against the ship. The end of verse 4 says, the ship was about to be broken up. Literally, the ship is about to be smashed. This storm came suddenly, without warning, out of nowhere. The mariners it says, are terrified. Now that says something because they were veteran seamen. These were guys that spent their lives on the ocean. They've been through storms. They've survived many storms. But this storm was different. They'd never seen anything like it. It was unique. They suspected that this was a supernatural storm. They suspected that this was the work of an angry God. And they were right. Because God had sent that storm. It says very clearly in verse 4. The Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. The Hebrew word stronger. It's literally God hurled. This storm. The same word is used in verse 5 when the mariners throw their cargo overboard. Same word. They hurled it over. The same word will be used later when they throw Jonah overboard. They hurl him. This is a word that means to throw with precision and purpose. Like you got a javelin and you're trying to hit a target. God hurled this storm at Jonah the prophet with precision and purpose. Now, we don't like to hear about God hurling storms at us, do we? We like to talk more about how God calms storms. We like those stories in the gospel where Jesus says, Peace. 
be still to the storm and brings all those calm waters. God can calm storms, and I'm glad he can, because we all face storms in life. You know, we face storms in life just because we live in a fallen world. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're immune from the problems that happen in a fallen world. We face storms. Also, as Christians, the enemy, Satan, can throw storms at us. So I'm glad to know that God can calm a storm. But he can also hurl a storm. Why would he do that? Because the Bible says, the Lord chastens the one that he loves. Storms can come our way to discipline us. To wake us up. To turn us around. And that's what's going on here. God is targeting Jonah the prophet to discipline him. Now, you got to feel for those mariners on board, don't you? You got to feel for those guys. They got all caught up in this. It's almost like they're in the wrong place, right? At the wrong time. These men are going to face the nightmare storm of their life because Jonah the prophet's on board. Which brings up something very important to remember. Disobedience doesn't just impact the one who's disobedient. Please understand that. Your disobedience doesn't just impact you. It impacts all the people around you. Your disobedience can impact your marriage. Your family. Your circle of friends, where you work, your church, your community. Someone said, disobedience is like a rock thrown into a pond. It creates ripples that move over the water in ever-expanding circles. You have no idea the extent your sin may reach. Your sin complicates life for yourself And for other people. Don't forget that. It's not just you. It's the people you carry along. Jonah's sin certainly complicated this voyage for the captain and his crew. Notice how those sailors reacted to this storm. Verse 5, it says, the mariners were afraid. That's another strong word in the Hebrew. Terrified, petrified. Terrified out of their minds. These guys are facing certain death on an angry ocean. They're terrified of it. Like so many in our culture, they had no hope of anything beyond the grave. Death is a black hole. It's the end of all things. They're staring right into that black hole, and they're terrified. Those guys on that ship, they got religious. Real quick. More superstitious than anything, right? It says that every man cried out to his God. 
So there were a lot of guys on that ship from different places, different cultures, different people, different lands. In those days, every city had their own god, their own idol. And it may have been that when they came on this boat, they even had their little pocket idol, their god from their land. And they're all crying out to their little idols, call out on your god. Any god will do. Just cry out to all of them. We hope one of them hears us. Empty, dead religion will never help you in the moment of crisis. Ever. A false god who can't hear or speak or act won't help you. So it's not like you can get religious all of a sudden at the end. Verse 5 also says something very interesting. It says right in the middle there that they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea. Now that's an insightful thing. How are those guys making their money? The cargo, right? Throw it overboard. Isn't it amazing how in a crisis, cargo can become completely inconsequential? Throw it over. Get rid of the big screen TV. Who cares? Throw the wealth overboard. And yet, it's so sad how many people will will spend their whole life in the pursuit of collecting more and more cargo. All the wealth, all the stuff that they can possibly get. And then at the end, when they reach the final moment where they look death, it means nothing to them. Throw it overboard. Oh, there's so many people that put all their trust and faith in money and wealth. I will never forget, many years ago, there was a lady at the church who called me. She was despondent. Her husband had left her. Went to Mexico with his secretary. She said, the kids are completely distraught. Pastor, can you come over and pray with the family? And I did, and they lived in a mansion. And I remember walking up the driveway past the four or five sports cars the three-car garage. I walked into the front courtyard, into the beautiful lobby, back to the living room with the glass pane wall, looking out over their swimming pool and their beautiful, beautiful view. And I saw a family destroyed. Young teenage boy, I'll never forget. He had real long hair. He just looked down and all of his hair was pulled forward, covering his face, and he just rocked back and forth like this. And I can promise you, pools and mansions and cars meant nothing at that moment to that young man. He would have thrown it all overboard to get dad back. And yet how many people Put trust in the stuff of this world. 
So I want you to just picture these sailors. They're fighting for their lives. They're calling out on any god who would listen. They've learned that cargo means nothing. Throw it out. Terrify. Now, the man who has the answers... The prophet of the living God. The one who knows the living God. The one who knows the truth. The one who can immediately stand up and give everyone the information that they need. Where's he? Jonah had gone into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, And was fast asleep. This is not the sleep of innocence. This is the sleep of complacency. This is the sleep of a man with a seared conscience. This is the sleep of carnal security. This is the sleep of supreme apathy. The pagan non-believers at the top fighting for their lives, crying out, and the man of God asleep. The captain goes down to him, verse 6. What do you mean, sleeper? Literally, what kind of game are you playing, dude? What do you mean you're down here? How in the world could you be sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Now that's a terrible thing when you have a pagan unbeliever telling a man of God to pray. Hmm. Shouldn't it be the other way around? Well, the storm gets worse. The crew gets desperate. Verse 7. They said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on? On Jonah. So these guys are absolutely convinced somebody on board that ship is responsible. And in their pagan, superstitious thinking. Let's cast lots. Let's find out who's the troublemaker. Now you got to see, there's probably, what, I don't know, 50 guys on the, maybe more? It's a lot of guys. They play some game, they throw die, they draw straws, whatever. I don't know what the statistics are on that. But it points to who? Jonah. Jonah is exposed. God can send a storm. And God can also send the roll of a die. Whatever it takes. And so now Jonah... Is exposed, and now comes all the investigation, the questions. Verse 18, they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? 
What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Now, this is pathetic. This is remarkable. Jonah is a complete mystery. Nobody on that boat knows anything about him. He got on that boat in complete anonymity. Secret. Intentionally concealing himself. Hiding. Not wanting anybody to know who he was. Yeah, when a man of God is doing that, something's wrong. But he can't avoid it. He's been asked. The lot is pointed to him. Who are you? What country? What people? What have you done? Verse 9, so he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, Jonah fessed up. I'm a Hebrew. Who am I? I'm a Hebrew. I'm a prophet. I know the one true living God. His name's Yahweh. He's the God who created the land and the sea. And I'm running from him. He told me to do something and I've rebelled. I'm running. It says the sailors were exceedingly afraid. Why? Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing even more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Throw me in. Throw me in the sea. Get me off board. Please. Get me off your sinking boat. I'm the culprit. As soon as I get off this boat, you'll be saved. Now, what do we think of of Jonah here? Is this an honorable thing? Do you kind of see this as an honorable thing? Is he sacrificing his life for the sailors? Or is this his final stand of rebellion? Jonah could have repented. He could have called on the Lord as God. He could have said, I'm sorry. He could have said, spare the lives of these sailors. Calm the sea. Take me back to shore. I'll go. No. Kill me. He'd rather die. Then complete that mission. So Jonah says, throw me over. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rowed hard to return to land, 
But they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. You know, I, I, as I read this story, more and more I admire those guys. These were good men. Jonah says, throw me overboard. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. And so they try to row. Get back to shore. Get Jonah back on his mission. They're trying to get Jonah back on line with what Jonah doesn't even want to do. But the harder they row, the worse the storm gets. Verse 14, therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done it as it pleased you. Lord, don't hold this against us. So, verse 15, they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Now, the language there is, the instant Jonah hit that water, the storm went away. The waters were calm. That very moment, supernatural. As sudden as the storm came, was as sudden as the storm left. And those mariners were saved. And even better, look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Remember I said it seemed like those guys were in the wrong place at the wrong time? Actually, they were in the right place at the right time. God was revealing himself to them. They got to see the living God in action. The living God who can begin a storm and stop a storm. And the Bible tells us that God can take things that are meant for evil and turn them to good. God can use the life of a disobedient prophet. And he did. These guys became believers. It says in verse 16, they feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And then they took vows, meaning we promise to keep doing this. These guys became believers. Through a nightmare storm. What a testimony they may have had, right? Okay, I want you to see a picture. It's a tragic picture. Pagan non-believers in a hopeless, desperate situation, headed for doom, headed for judgment, fighting for their lives, but their self-efforts won't help them, their cargo won't save them, their false gods won't save them, Fighting for their lives, 
needing answers. And the man of God, asleep. What a tragic picture. Jonah was absolutely zero good for those guys. In fact, it was better for those non-believers to have Jonah off the boat than to have him on the boat. Apply this picture to life today. In the world all around us, there are many, many non-believers living in a hopeless, desperate situation, headed for judgment, confused, superstitious, living their whole life for cargo. I hope the church isn't asleep. I hope the church isn't asleep. But I fear that many of the church are asleep. Church for many people has just become sort of a club where they hang out with all their Christian friends. They take no notice of the people outside the church that are hurting. There's no outreach. No concern. Everywhere around us, people are crying out for meaning and salvation, and there we sleep. I'd like you to apply this picture to yourself personally. In your life, you are surrounded by pagan non-believers in a desperate situation, no answers, looking for meaning. They're in your neighborhood, your place of occupation, your school, your circle of friends, your family connections, and you're the man of God. You're the woman of God who's been placed. Are you asleep? Are you complacent? Are you apathetic? Do you care? Do you hear? Jonah slept in a place where he hoped no one would see him or disturb him. Sleeping Christians like to hide out among the church where nobody in the world can see them. Jonah slept in a place where he could not help with the work that needed to be done. Sleeping Christians stay away from the work of the Lord. Jonah slept while there was a prayer meeting up on the deck. Sleeping Christians don't like prayer meetings. Jonah slept and had no idea of the problems around him. Sleeping Christians don't know what is really going on. Jonah slept when he was in great danger. Sleeping Christians are in danger, they just don't know it. Jonah slept while the heathen needed him. Sleeping Christians snooze on while the world needs their message and testimony. Paul tells us, 
in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is something for all of us as Christians. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Let us be out there shining. Let us be responding to the cries. Don't be asleep. Very quickly, very quickly, I want to take you to a similar story in the New Testament, a much better example. Very quickly, turn to Acts 27, page 1290, if you're using that Bible, Acts chapter 27. This time, Paul the Apostle is on a boat. He's headed for Rome. He's a prisoner on that boat. But he's not disobedient. He's a prisoner because he's obedient for the Lord. So Paul's on a boat. They're headed for Rome. Look at verse 13. It says, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euroclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands. They struck sail and so were driven." And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither the sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. They're on a storm. They're in a boat. What does the man of God do in this story? Verse 21. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and occurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Paul's not hiding. He stands up. He takes charge. The prisoner. To encourage them. 
Let me tell you about the God who I know and I serve. I was praying for you. I was praying for our situation. He sent an angel with a message. We're going to make it. You're going to be saved. Take heart. Well, the storm continues. They keep struggling through it. Eventually, they... uh, become aware that they're getting close to land and they're, they're actually afraid that they're going to break up on some rocks. And so now people are lowering down the skiff and they're going to leave the boat. They're going to try to get off board. Skip down to verse 31. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Stay on board, folks. Don't get off this boat. Stay with me on this ship, Paul said. Verse 33, and as the day was about to dawn, I love this part, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, today's the 14th day you've waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 people on that boat. And Paul breaks bread with them. Prays for them. That's the good picture. That's how we should be. In Jonah's case, (laughs) it was better for them to have Jonah off the boat. In this case, they were so blessed to have Paul on the boat. Salvation unto him, through him. Gang, people are on a storm. Things are crazy out there. People are confused. People are hurting. We've got to be those men and women that shine. We've got to be those folks that will help people out. Don't hide out. Don't be secretive. Don't be mysterious. Be open. Share with people the truth. Here's the picture of a man by the name of John Harper. He lived many years ago. He was an amazing, wonderful man of God. He lived in England, but he was called to come to America to become the head of Moody Bible Church. He got on the Titanic. And you know the story of the Titanic. Many people perished, including John Harper. He died in that watery grave, and he went to heaven. Sometime after that happened, a young Scotsman 
rose in a church meeting in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and gave this testimony. I was on the Titanic, said he, when she sank. Drifting alone on a spar in the icy water on that awful night, a wave brought John Harper of Glasgow near me. Man, are you saved? He shouted. No, I'm not, was my reply. He answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. The waves bore him away, but strange to say, a little later he was washed back alongside me. Are you saved now? he asked. No, I replied. I can honestly say that I'm not. I can't honestly say that I am. Once more he repeated that verse, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Then losing his hold, he sank. And there alone in the night, and with two miles of water under me, I believed. He said, I am John Harper's last convert. We're to be like John Harper. Do we even hear the people drowning? Do we care? What a picture. The theme verse, really, that I think sums up the whole book of Jonah. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You and I know that compassionate God, don't we? Don't we want others to know? He is so compassionate. He wants to save the wicked Ninevites. Look what he did to save the mariners on that boat. Look what he's done to save us. And by the way, God ain't through with Jonah. Off the boat he goes. But there's a big fish underneath the surface. Even as pathetic and as confusing you would get in thinking about this prophet, God loves him. And God's going after him. And God's going to change that man's heart and use Jonah the prophet to be one of the greatest revivalists who has ever walked the earth. Our God is a God of compassion. Let's not sit on that information. Let's not sleep. Father, I pray, I pray that we would see the the season of opportunity that we're in. Lord, that we would not get so busy in our American life that we don't see the people that are hurting all around us. Lord, we don't want to be those that are hiding, concealing ourselves.
Lord, we thank you for the men and women that you've used in our lives. People that weren't afraid to speak the truth to us. And how you use them to reach us, to pull us out of the depths of despair and to save us. And I pray that we would, we would, we would be those men and women that reach out to others. Bring revival, Lord, to our hearts. Bring revival to this land. With your head bowed, your eyes closed, maybe you're here tonight and you feel just like that. You're on that boat in that storm. You're looking for answers. You're You're saying like, man, you perfectly described me tonight. I feel lost. I feel fearful. Man, it's a terrible thing to be in life without the living God. And I want you to know that God loves you. So much that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus. Who died on the cross for your sins and rose again the third day. And you can become a child of God through faith in Christ. He reaches out. He paid the price. If you place your faith and trust in him, he'll save you. You'll become one of his. If you haven't made that decision, I'd like to help you in making that decision, just with a, a prayer, a cry out to God, a, a cry out to the living God, the one who hears and knows and sees you, the one who made you and loves you. Just cry out to him, say, Lord Jesus, I invite you to be my savior. I put my faith and my trust in you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Paying that price for me. Wash away all my sins. Make me brand new. And make me a light to other people. Use my life to rescue others. for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.